This episode of The Incomparable is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com. Enter offer code SNELL at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. The Incomparable. Number 239, March 2015. Welcome back to The Incomparable. I am Jason Snell. Um, So this is uh, not, I hope, a trend, but our second in about uh, five weeks of of tributes to people who have uh, recently passed away. Um, Terry Pratchett, the great writer, Sir Terry Pratchett, passed away recently. And we've convened a group of people who have read a bunch of Terry Pratchett stuff to talk about it. I'm not actually one of those people, so I'm going to fade into the background after introducing to you these fine members of our panel who are going to talk in this episode. Lisa Schmeiser's out there. Hi, Lisa. Hi, it's great to be here. Monty Ashley is there. Hi, Monty. Hi, Jason. You should read Terry Pratchett. I should read more of it. I've read I've read some, but I should read more. I, I, I look forward to hearing you tell me what episodes or what episodes, what books I should read. Uh, Dan Morin. Hello. Uh, nice to be here. I wish it was under better circumstances. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Steve Lutz. Hey, Jason. Uh, glad to be here. Wish it was like Dan, uh, you know, a happier time. I wish these guys would stop dying. Yes. Cut it out. Make yeah. It, make, yeah, exactly. Enough already with the tribute episodes, okay? Yes. I suppose we could do anti-tribute episodes. <laughs> glad you're dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> So, Lisa, Monty, you guys had some ideas about what the uh, the, the subjects uh, should be tonight. Uh, where where uh, where do you guys want to get started? I think actually Monty had a really good one that I remember, which is Pratchett is an example of why you shouldn't start with his earliest work and go chronologically. You should find another starting point and dive in. True, although some of us did that anyway, just because yeah. we were yeah, obsessive and repulsive <laughs> and we felt we needed to. Or because we actually like read him as he updated in real time because I, I got into Pratchett in the eighties of all things. So yeah, so did was, I. I. Yeah, I ch- I checked my uh, copy of The Color of Magic, and it is a uh, first edition, although it's a first edition U.S. paperback, which probably doesn't count for anything. Mm-hmm. But it was printed in the U.S. before even the Light Fantastic, so. Yeah. I started right at the beginning. Yeah, I I did too. Although I think I someone so like I got that as a library book. And I remember reading it at camp, and I remember somebody gave it to me. I mean, my mom might have done it like based on a recommendation from someone else in my family. I couldn't say who recommended it to me, but I think I read that as like a ten year old or something. <laughs> yeah, somebody in high school uh, loaned me, knowing that I was a Hitchhikers fan. Just you know, showed up one day with a copy of I think it's a first edition hardcover of the Light Fantastic. Uh, which he he loaned me and um, which I still actually have. So Chris Hayes, if you're out there, I got your book, buddy. <laughs> wow, it's probably worth a lot more right now. I think that's how a lot of us got into it. Is somebody sees you reading Douglas Adams and they go, "Oh, if you like wacky British authors, here here is the next one on your list." Because that's the concession era at the pool I worked at in the summer of like 1989 was like, "I think you'll really enjoy these." And uh, handed me the first two. But sadly, I never actually read that copy of the book. I uh, I started in on it, realized it was the second, um, you know, in, in that particular book starts in the middle of the action where I think yeah. Prince mm-hmm. Wind is plummeting to earth with his chest. And I thought, mm-hmm. I, eh, I should probably read the first book. And then I just never quite got around to finding it until much, much later, just a few years ago, and uh, and felt 
as I mentioned, that I had to start at the beginning, which, uh, you know, mm-hmm. was, was a little bit rust sledding, but... Uh, yeah. I have no memory of why I got The Color of Magic or why I liked it so much, because I've reread it several <laughs> times since then, and it's basically just three unconnected pastiches stuck together. What is startling is if you read the first, the first two, especially, and then you go and you read right in the middle after he's introduced the watch and done some serious world building. And it's hard to believe that they come from the same mind almost like the first two books are almost as if they're rough drafts and they feel almost reactionary. Like they were written in reaction to high minded British fantasy. And then for me, the turning point actually was equal rights where he introduces Escarina and Granny Weatherwax and you, and it's still very wizard centric, but it broadens the world a little bit. That's only the third book. So he got there pretty quick. It's fair to say that those first two books, I think are much more, you know, parody than serious books. And then at some point he, as you said, the first book, because it's vignettes and because it's just like, you know, straight up parody without much story at all behind it actually reads more like some uh, episodic submissions to Dragon Magazine or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting to go back and read the book he wrote before The Color of Magic, Strata, which yeah, is Strata's also on weird. a disc world, and explains one of the jokes in the book that he didn't put the punchline in, which is the reason there's a bar called The Broken Drum, it can't be beat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course. Is that why they destroyed The Broken Drum? Well, the broken drum gets burned down in the color of magic, and then right. every every time you go to Ankhmore Park from then on, it's the mended drum, which he also right. never explains. Yeah. yeah. Well, why do you have to explain it? They they built it after they burnt it down. It's mended mm-hmm. now. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah that's. Yeah. But but one of the things I've I've found um, when I try to explain Discworld to people who are who are not hardcore fantasy people is is you don't have to read them in order, and you can actually kind of read them in thematic groups, and you still get a fairly rich experience. And to me, that's really gratifying, because having slogged my way through a lot of sequential series, where if you happen mm-hmm. to find book number four in the library, but you haven't read one through three yet, and you're like, ah, it's it's gratifying to say, look, you don't have to sweat it, just start with Guards, Guards, and then read about the, the City Watch, or, or start with, witch, or start with um, Weird Sisters, and you can read your way through the witches, or you can read one of the standalones like Pyramids or um, Moving Pictures to see how you like the tone of of Discworld and then jump in. And um, I appreciated how he had what were basically like four or five distinct groups of characters that he kind of had moving in tandem. And sometimes they interact or sometimes they mention each other, but it doesn't all tie in. And this way you can kind of pick and choose your, 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 your Discworld experience if you're so inclined. It's not really a giant... Um... Wheel of Time style Mm-mm. 30 book series. Most yeah. of the right. books are standalone. Yeah. Or as Lisa said, thematic, you know, in terms of there are characters that get followed. So, like, I mean, I started reading all the Rincewind books because as a, you know, teenage, preteen or whatever, that really tickled my fancy because I just yeah. found them hilarious at that point. <laughs> um, but, you know, I. <laughs> And I never really got into the I never really got into the witches as much. In fact, that's like that's one of the, the things I've sort of favorites. I've saved uh-huh. that because you know, as I think I said on Twitter when I heard that he passed away, was you know I saved some Terry Pratchett books, knowing that at some point there would be no more Terry Pratchett books. But I have also been like sort of you know slightly introduced to some of those characters via the Tiffany Aching books too, because they play parts yeah. in that as well. Yeah. So. It's they all everything's connected in the Discworld mm-hmm. universe, but it's not like as you're saying, it's not like a, a you know thirty series book a thirty book series mm-hmm. where you have to like start at the beginning and read all the way through to the end. 
And one of the things I like, and this sounds mean, but I like that a lot of the characters don't like each other. Like, mm-hmm. Moise von Lipwig, it just does not does not care for Vimes, and the feeling is more than mutual. Cause, and, and I appreciate that, because although I do like the Watch books a lot, after... I, I sort of feel like Vimes gets a tad Mary Sued towards the end of it, and I don't, and, and I don't, and I want to stress I don't mind because I do like the books. But after a while, it was like, okay, exactly how many times can you make him the Duke of something or promote him higher? And people tell him what a great copper he is, and he's managed to solve the equivalent of of, of strife in the Middle East, and he's managed to help emancipate a country that was in the that was in the thralls of the equivalent of the Taliban, and now he's managed to stop slavery and human trafficking, and and. Like that can only happen so many times, yeah. and, and it's nice when other characters are like, yeah, he's kind of he's kind of a jerk. But that's really interesting to watch happen because at the beginning of the yeah. Night's Watch, Vimes is drunk. The city is a mistress. Yeah. Vimes is a protagonist, but it really felt to me like Carrot was going Carrot, to be the yeah. focus of things. Yes, and yeah. He's but there's not. only so there's only so far you can go with that character because they both fall into the same you know eventual thing of they're kind of they're paladins, right? Like there is a lawful goodness about them that you can't necessarily like. Carrot has nowhere to go because he already starts as like the, you know, G aw shucks, like perfectly good guy. So it's not as though he has a lot of room to grow. Um, well, Vimes so. actually and if has he, If that. he does, his life is in jeopardy from the... Uh... Well, right, I like right. that the running joke is that everybody knows he's supposed to be the rightful king of Ankh-Morpork Pork and he has no interest in it. He's, yeah. no, I'd, I'd just rather be a cop and have my werewolf girlfriend. And <laughs> both times that... Is it just once or is it twice? Because, oh, because there is... Um, the one with the gun, um, where and Dragon King of Arms, who's the vampire who keeps the breeding books, like they 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 try to pull together a conspiracy to put Carrot on the throne. And he's genuinely confused as to why anybody would want to do that when things are working so well. And um, I, I like that they said, okay, we've got Terry Pratchett took this this fantasy convention that is so 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 threadbare as to practically be mesh and which is <laughs> oh it's the, the foundling prince who comes back to reclaim his legacy and in this case the family prince came back fell in love with the city and was like i can best serve the city by serving under somebody who really loves this city and and boom that's it <laughs> he's working under the biggest anti- is it ever clear that he's aware that he's you know the once and future king or whatever because i've never gotten the impression that he picked that up there are winks right yeah. at the end of a couple of books where Carrot shows that he's not as naive as he acts. Right. Yeah. No. He's just straightforward and people confuse that for naivete. Yes. And uh and I like that they've basically made him you know, press press the button and in comes the plot device, and I like that that's how he's used. Um I the um you know, of course, I could I could find criticisms because you can't write however many books he wrote without saying yeah, he falls on some hackney trips and so on and so forth. But most of the time, I think what I really liked is as the books progressed through the series, he Pratchett became simultaneously angrier about the cupidity of human nature and mm-hmm. more enamored and hopeful about when we managed to overcome our human nature and, and, and push people towards progress a little bit at a time. Yeah, I think that's why... My favorite uh, protagonists of his are the most cynical ones. Yeah. Like, he's got hundreds of characters, but he drifts towards Vimes and Granny Weatherwax, people Mm -hmm. who can say really mean things. Yeah. (laughs) Let me take a break to tell you about MailRoute. MailRoute is a uh, service that lives in the cloud, and it's like, I'm going to use a sports metaphor now. Sorry, people who hate sports. It's like a great defensive player. 
in a sporting event, like think of an American football contest where you've got a cornerback who's roving around and when the ball gets there, it's trying to go to the receiver and he leaps in front of it and uh, grabs the ball. That's what MailRoute does to spam and viruses and email bounces and other junk that you don't want in your inbox. It lives in the cloud and that stuff never gets to your mail server because it goes inbound to MailRoute and MailRoute kicks it out with its intelligent uh, cloud-based services. So you don't have to install any hardware or special software. That all happens at MailRoute. All you have to do is sign up and you can do a risk-free trial. There's no credit card necessary. You change your MX records, which are the things in the domain name system that say, hey, where does email for this domain go? You point those at MailRoute. So MailRoute takes in all the mail for your domain, filters it, and then pops it on behind the scenes to your server. The result is a a spam-free, virus-free mailbox. Regular desktop users will find the interface simple and effective. You can change uh, what it filters and how it filters it. You can get an email that tells you everything that got filtered out. I love watching that to see how the crazy spam subjects change over time. And if you do see something good that you want to keep, you can actually click on it and uh, it'll be automatically delivered to your inbox. If you're an email administrator or IT professional, they got all the tools. They got the APIs for easy account management. They support LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mail bagging. That's my favorite. Outbound relay. All of this stuff is there if you're an IT pro. So start that risk-free trial. Sign up with MailRoute. And because you are an incomparable listener, you'll get 10% off for the lifetime of your account by going to MailRoute.net slash incomparable right now. And thank you so much to MailRoute out for filtering my email and keeping the junk out of it and for sponsoring the incomparable i i, I am an unabashed the witch the witch books are always my favorites just because i yeah. well i like how how complex he gives every one of the characters their dignity even magret because <laughs> um <laughs> oh magret at the end of lords and ladies is so good yeah, well, the thing is, is Lords and Ladies really is Magret's book, because there's that whole long passage about how Granny Weatherwax may be a better witch, but Magret has a scientific mind, and she's a better doctor. And yeah. I appreciated that he took the time to put that in there, and and all that. And um, what I really like is, is although Granny Weatherwax is the cynic, it's Nanny Og who has the measure of humanity, and he lets her, he gives her a lot of space to run with it in a couple of books, too. Yeah, Nanny has to clean up Granny's messes a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> Masquerade especially. Oh my god, I love that book. Mostly because it's just a pastiche on the on the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> but when the two of them hit the city and, and Nanny Og has, has figured out in like less than twenty four hours exactly how it works out and Granny Weatherwax says, How? How did you do that? And, and she's all my our Nev said this and our Kev said that and our Trev said this. But I I love I love those books. I I like when Granny Weatherwax can be cruel. And one of my favorite passages is also in Lords and Ladies when she and Mightily Oats are traveling together and they have to burn the Book of Om and they basically have a long talk about what it means to believe in something. And she's like, you know, if I actually believed in a religion, I wouldn't just run around. I would be making other people believe in it too. And Mightily Oats is like, I am, I am so grateful that you're an atheist. <laughs> you would be terrifying if you're a believer. <laughs> and it, it was nice. It was a great exchange. Um, you know, because she comes up against, she, she she beats herself against the anvil of somebody else's personality, and everybody is always interested in watching the sparks fly. Well, one thing I think is great about Pratchett is that although he's writing in fantasy, which is a kind of gutter genre, and he's writing mm -hmm. comedic fantasy, which is even worse than that, yeah. <laughs> he has no fear about writing a book like 
small gods, which is all about mm-hmm. religion and belief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's my favorite Pratchett book. You can couch a lot of stuff in that in the fantasy tropes, right? By sort of making it alien and being like, "Oh yes, this is some other world that I am talking about." But he does such a good. I mean, he and he runs the the gamut from you know you're talking about religion to he talks about Hollywood, right? In moving pictures, you know, all these he sort of can go like the satire angle of it really doesn't. Uh, shy away from too many targets so he does like entertainment he does and then you know things like uh going postal the truth making money sort of taking on the institutions um i and i i agree with you i think because of the, the fantasy really frees him up to be able to say pretty much anything he wants and the, because the world gets so detailed and so you know flush with all these characters and institutions it really does become sort of a weird mirror of our own world uh, and I don't think I think you'd be hard pressed to come up with another like another writer who who cre- creates such an elaborate, thorough simulacrum. Well, when you think about it, he moved from like the Middle Ages up to Victorian era England over the course of the books. Because mm-hmm. when when these books started, I mean, they were drinking that and I forget they were drinking um, water out of wells with newts in them. And um, he's pointed out that the timeline is deliberately messy with yeah. Shakespeare's Old Globe right next to a giant Parisian opera house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are centuries apart. Well, and then the, the internet uh, heading across the disc from yeah. one end to the other as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, so the whole, the whole point, really, of sci-fi and to a lesser extent fantasy is to be able to get away with, you know, modern social commentary and couch it in, you know, whatever universe you're working within, and, and you can get away with a lot more that way, and especially if you're doing comedy. And uh, and I think he he uses that ability to really great effect. I mean, some of these uh, you mentioned small gods, uh, Lisa, which actually is is my favorite as well. I actually find that a terribly moving book. And and yeah, I'm not, I, I you know, sobbed through like the last ten pages. Yeah, of it. yeah. It's I mean the the characters and the way they deal with each other and the way they deal with their faith or their lack thereof is is really good stuff. Even if you're not you know a particularly religious person, and I definitely am not. Uh, you know he he. He really kind of can move you through that, uh, through through the the background of of the fantasy universe that he's built. I said this on Twitter too, but over the process of leaving the Catholic Church, which I had been raised in since childhood, um, and I left and I left, and it was literally like the ugliest breakup I've ever been in in my life. And the two books that actually helped me frame my thinking and save my sanity to some extent were um, Lamb by Christopher Moore, who is a wonderful another wonderful author to read if you want comic fantasy that also has some sly social commentary in there and then small gods by terry pratchett and i read and reread both of those books and and they really helped me get my head on straight as to why i was doing what i was doing and where i wanted to end up and um i think that's another endorsement for them too (laughs) (laughs) is you know when you do come from a heavily religious background and you choose to leave it having a book like small gods was a really helpful um really helpful framework for figuring out what my own ideas were independent of what i had been taught Oh, now I've brought down the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to look up a book title because I can't remember it and it's killing me. Which one? What the, What kind of question is that? If I knew the one about describe, sports. Describe the book. Unseen, oh, Unseen, Unseen, Unseen Academicals. Academicals. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that was the one that. that I think was one of the later ones that I read. And I mean, after he had announced that he had was you know diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And I read that and I still remember laughing out loud at portions of that and thinking like, man, you know, if you... You could find people who are half as good as a as a writer as Terry Pratchett who don't have Alzheimer's. Like that's pretty impressive. Oh God, I I also love the wizards because they're just so 
freaking chaotic. And yeah. yeah, well, the the it's all a pastiche and common to satire in academia, right? Like you know, there's that whole since the beginning, the wizard. I mean, and I think that's why I liked the Rincewind books early on is that that whole culture of all, especially I think in sorcery, they become sort of more involved in it. Um, the whole like the dean and the bursar and all these people all the arguing and their stupid Ponder petty Stibbons. discussions <laughs> yeah ponder stibbins and his what well, does he have like a computer later on his machine thinking machine mm-hmm. or something yeah hex um, it's controlled by bees hex, right right yeah what I, one of the things i like about small gods which is just a brilliant novel is that it's not just about religion but it actually even to an atheist helps explain religion and I liken it to Unseen Academicals, which, among other things, explains why people like sports. (laughs) (laughs) It lets you see that it's part of the shared experience of everybody cheering for the same thing. And I think it's a mark of a really good writer that he can tackle both sports and religion. With equal. Yeah, he can honor them equally and explain, not really explain them both, but help you understand both. And also, I love the end of Unseen. I love the end of many of his novels, but the moment in, the moment in Unseen Academicals, where the orc character is being booed by the entire stadium, and he steps forward, and everybody's quiet, and he says, "Come on, if you think you're hard enough." Yes, and everybody just cheers him because they all said, "That's the right thing to say." <laughs> Pratchett was great at moments like that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think you're totally right that he he does such an. There are a lot of books that could, and I, you know, sometimes in some cases put Douglas Adams into this category uh, that could just be a string together of a lot of jokes. Um, but his books actually work as books. Even you know they are funny, but they they tell a complete story, and it is generally a story that you know makes sense and it's well plotted and all that, and it's not like. You know, he'll go a long way for a joke, but he won't derail necessarily <laughs> the entire story for a joke. And I think that's, to my mind, that's what makes him so successful is that his books are are funny, but they're also perfectly good books just to sit down and, and read. And the plots make sense and the characters are wonderfully drawn. With the exception of a few obvious periods like his, you know, his, his first couple of books and then the sequence of books where his whole conception behind the novel was basically what happens if we drop a gun into Discworld? Okay, how about movies? Okay, (laughs) how about a guitar? Sure, yeah. I like soul music a lot. I like it more than moving pictures. I think that's probably the best of the three. There is one line in moving pictures I say a lot, which is when they've invented popcorn, because of course they have to invent everything. Banged grains. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, If you put butter and salt on it, it tastes sort of like salty butter. (laughs) <laughs> I say that all the time. Which is what people want to begin with. The popcorn yes. is just a vehicle. Well, and, I, and I really like soul music in particular because I really like death. And you can't talk, you know, <laughs> ironically enough, uh, you know, I think that that's my, he is probably my favorite character in all of Discworld. Uh, you know, and with perhaps maybe the uh, the caveat that the death of rats is actually amazing, but only squeak. ever gets to say squeak. Yeah, um, that's okay. People love the librarian. He doesn't say much. The librarian is great as well. <laughs> He's like, please don't turn me back. Don't call him a monkey. Ook! Ook! Uh, death is such a fascinating character and runs through so many of these books. Uh, because, of course, everybody dies eventually. I, I think he's one of the few characters who's in every single one. There's always a death cameo in every book. Yes, starting with Color of Magic. Sometimes they feel shoehorned in, but it's there. But, I mean, again, he's universal, right? And But his character of death as drawn is someone who is just, A, kind of like doing a job, 
Um, and it's kind of like, this is my thing. I mean, you, and you get your death-centric novels, too, like Reaper Man and Mort uh, and Soul Music. Uh, and so I think having him there in, you know, to sort of string all these things together and also to just be sort of, he's the, he's the immovable, unstoppable force, right? And, and the great equalizer. So I think he's, he is among my favorite of all of the characters, him and Veterinari. <laughs> I'm having a near Vimes experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has that one book, too. And um, I also enjoy when he and the witches, uh, when, when Granny Weatherwax gives him a, a chiropractic adjustment. But yeah, Reaper Man was, I think, the first book that actually like hit me between the eyes emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my, I think w- that's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. And... Um, then later, uh, when I read Hogs Fa- Hogfather, Hogfather, which I, yeah. I do tend to re- reread around the holidays, when he asked Susan, you know, might you have a kiss for your old granddad? And that, for some reason, like, oh, geez, this poor, this poor anthropomorphic personification of death. All he wants is his, <laughs> all he wants is his granddaughter to give him a kiss because he misses having kids. And it's it's just it's it's unutterably touching. You know, and uh, and Susan Stohelet is also one of my favorites. And I think it's because in fantasy, it's comparatively rare to have female characters who are not there as as means to help the male characters develop their character more, or as rewards, or as, as props. And one of the things, Pratchett had such an innate respect for all of his characters that he developed. You, you never got the sense that there was any princess who existed solely because there was a prince who, who needed to have a girlfriend after a while, or there was never an evil queen who was evil simply for the sake of, of, of giving people something to do. It was always, uh, there was always something a little bit deeper, you know, even with, with characters like Vorbis, who still haunts my nightmares. <laughs> and, um, and, and, um, the auditors, which, um, are also frankly horrific. Mm-hmm. I was trying to remember if if Reaper Man has one of my favorite footnotes, and of course, footnotes is a big Terry Pratchett thing. But my, I think it's the one about um, is that the one where they, he talks about anti crime, where it just <laughs> involves like leaving things places and people just leaving ex- <laughs> like shopping carts in like random places. Oh, no. uh, but I just uh, Terry Pratchett's ma- like the foot. He, this man turned footnotes into an art. I think. Probably before David Foster Wallace, you know, <laughs> ventured down that path, and and with different well, effects. knew when to stop. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he, they were always. I I just always remembered looking for the footnotes, especially as a younger reader, and just being so excited when I realized a page had a footnote because I loved that they were so often they were little stories in and of themselves. Uh, and just fascinating little, like, you know, like a joke he couldn't quite fit into the main text, but decided, like, this is still pretty funny and deserves to go in there. I must admit, I eventually got to the point, probably about book 20, where I would hit a footnote and go, oh, really? I got to go down to the bottom of the page again. <laughs> it's a little bit harder with, the, with when you're reading on Kindle, because depending on what Kindle clock you're yes. reading in, it, yeah. it can, can completely reset your place in the book, and it's a pain in the neck to go back and forth, because most of the time, all of the footnotes are at the very end of the book. And so depending on if you're reading Kindle for iPad or Kindle for your Kindle or Kindle on the phone or, or Kindle on your, your laptop, you're either stuck going back and trying to remember where you were or it's a couple extra clicks. And it's it's a lot it's a lot less enjoyable to read the footnotes electronically than it is on, on the on the books that I still have in print. Definitely, definitely true. Well, Pratchett's a perfect argument for pop up footnotes. <laughs> I don't remember what book it was, but there was some Pratchett book where there was a footnote at the bottom of the page and I read the whole page, and I didn't see the asterisk. So I went back up and read the page again, and I didn't see it. And then I went word by word, and I didn't see it. And then it turned out it was on the next page because of a printing error. 
<laughs> was infuriating. Let me take a break to tell you about one of our sponsors. It's a financial-related sponsor, which means I get to read a disclaimer at the end in the disclaimer voice. That's going to be awesome. But first, I need to tell you about Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors, and it's for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional financial advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion, that's billion with a B, in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com Snell to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Here it comes. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And thank you to Wealthfront for letting me speak in hushed disclaimer tones and for sponsoring me Incomparable. I think we spent a lot of time talking. To be honest, Discworld is the one I'm the most familiar with. And there's also um, Good Omens with Neil Gaiman mm-hmm. that I, I've read a few times. And it's the it's my one tiny bit of nerd fan cred because I do have a copy that's signed by both Pratchett and Gaiman. Uh, I also have a copy signed by both Pratchett and Gaiman. There we go. Well, it's not that cool anymore, is it? Now there's two of you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> my copy is only signed by Neil Gaiman. Because the one time I went to see a Pratchett signing, I didn't bring it, and I don't know why. Oh! I brought The Color of Magic and whatever was new. It remains my favorite story that when I uh, went to see, uh, I think I'm trying I'm trying to remember, I think it was, I went to see Terry Pratchett first and uh, in, in Cambridge, and I had him sign the book, and I mentioned, oh, Neil Gaiman is going to be here in a week or two. I'm going to see him. Do you have any messages I should pass along? <laughs> and Terry Pratchett looks at me and thinks, and he goes... Tell him the color blue. <laughs> and so I went, of course, I told Neil Gaiman, oh, yes, I saw Terry Pratchett a couple weeks ago. He said to tell you the color blue. He's like, we just like sending each other random messages through fans sometimes. We just tell them to say <laughs> random things. Nice. And I just thought that was so delightful. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny because when you read Good Omens, um, and the first time I read it through, I was like, oh, how nice these two people, these two people wrote a book together. I don't, I wonder how they did that. And then mm-hmm. went on my way. And um, I was finishing up the Sandman run at the time, because Sandman was published from like 89 to 96. And Good Omen came out in 95. And so I finished up the Sandman run. And then I went back and reread it. And there are a lot of really nasty, anti-human, horrible, cold around the heart parts of, of, of that comic book series. And after having read like a, a, about 10 more Pratchett books and having read considerably more Gaiman, like the next time I went through and read Good Omens, I'm like, okay, that's a Gaiman passage. That's a Pratchett <laughs> passage. That's a Gaiman passage. That's, and it's turned out that's basically how they wrote is they, they would just take turns like, and when one person had cranked out 10 pages, they'd, they'd send it on to the other person and they just kind of naturally divvied up how things were, got written. And you can tell who was responsible for what parts just based on, you know, what, what stuff gets flown in. And is it angry and yet warm and humanist? Then it's Pratchett. Is it horrifying at its core? Then it's, then it's 
game. <laughs> the best part about that is they talk about that during because people ask about it, like signing and stuff. And they because they wrote it so early, they were they were sending floppy disks to each other in the yes. mail because it was oh the God. only way to do it because it was, <laughs> they wrote it in like the eighties. Yeah. Uh, and so like Terry and Terry was still living in Australia. So they'd be sending floppy disks like halfway across the world. So great. And, and it got uh, the fact that it got done is to me like amazing feat at that, just based on the amount of work that had to go into that. That was actually kind of the problem with small or not small gods, uh, good omens for me was that I couldn't I could see that there were two different uh, uh, writers kind of feuding with each other in the text and I couldn't really square the two and and uh, you know I, I I wanted more of the Pratchett side and I was kind of annoyed that the game inside kept popping in and <laughs> trying to disrupt <laughs> things. Yeah. <laughs> I think I read it young enough it didn't bother me as much but I, I haven't reread it in a while. Yeah. Lisa, it sounded like you were about to introduce the subject of entirely other Pratchett books. Which I want to I want to say I haven't read any, so this is basically if you guys have read the 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 Bromeliads or any of the others, I would love to hear about it. The We Free Men or any of that stuff? The We Free well, oh, the We Free, Free Men are Discworld. Discworld. Yeah. It is Discworld. I though I will say those are amazing. It, are they children's books effectively? They're, they're, they're YA books. They're YA books, but and surprisingly, you know, as many YA books are, they have a, a very adult tinge to them, especially the later ones as Tiffany yeah. starts approaching teenage I've years. I've given the Tiffany aching books to a lot of middle middle school girls. Yeah, and uh, that my cousin, who is a child's librarian, is also big on those. And she, I mean, she loves all the Terry Pratchett books, but I know she re- recommend that one. And I actually, I quite enjoy those. They're really, they're really great. And you haven't lived until you've te- seen two, like my cousin's kids at the time, I think were maybe... I don't know, in still before teens, so 10 or 7 or something like that. And they would go around the house. What, what do we like to do, lads? Drinking. And what else? Fighting. And what else? Stealing. And what else? Drinking and fighting and stealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the knockbook fiegel. Oh. But they, I just, and they are, ent- they are entertaining. And those books are fun, and especially, I think, Wintersmith and I Shall Wear Midnight, um, which start to get into the more adult themes uh, are really, really beautiful books, and I think great for kids of that, you know, especially young young women of that age, I think, because she is such a great protagonist, like, like Lisa was saying about, you know, he doesn't do sort of throwaway female characters, especially in his later books. They all have very, you know, they're very well-developed, and they have interesting stories, and Tiffany in particular, I think, is just such a fantastic character. Yeah. I like the supporting witches, though, too, because they give a lot of... Yep. Yep. There's the one who's a pig witch, and that's all she specializes <laughs> in her pigs. And she's the first one of them to get a boyfriend, and they can't figure it out until, like, oh, he's a hog farmer. <gasps> Got it. <laughs> yeah. But um, whipping through the non-Discworld books, Strata is like a serious Discworld. It's also very much a first book. Um, the Bromeliad is so great. It makes me cry several times. It's about tiny people who live initially in a uh, giant department store. And then they find out that there's another whole world out there. And it goes through three books of them expanding their world. And it's just great. I love it so much. Then there's the uh, Johnny Maxwell books, which have at least one of them has been made into a movie that I was watching some of the other day. That's uh, Johnny and the Bomb, Johnny and the Dead, and Only You Can Save Mankind. Uh, they're fun. They did not make me cry, so that is a plus <laughs> or a minus. And then just recently, he started doing non-Discworld books again, which I thought was great. 
I had forgot about Nation. Nation is a fantastic book. Oh, yeah. Nation's great. I'm really glad that that one's not Discworld because it shows that he could do other stuff still. Oh, and I was just, I was also just a lovely book. It was really yeah. well written and I really enjoyed it. And I, it kind of came out of nowhere, um, but I, I thought it was fantastic. I had no idea he had so many other, uh, no many other, other types of books out there. I'm yeah. kind of excited now. If only I actually read. <laughs> <laughs> he just recently did a hard sci-fi book, The Long Earth and... It's sequel that I can't remember. The Long Utopia. I've got them both waiting on my Kindle. Or rather, I've got one pre-ordered. The other one is waiting on my Kindle for and, me. And I hadn't gotten around to reading um, Dodger, which was the other one, which is sort of a... Uh, isn't that a Dickens? Yeah, that's... I was not crazy about Dodger, and I did not finish it. It is the only Pratchett book I haven't finished. It's basically him indulging his taste for research about Victorian England, which he loves to do. <laughs> but it's... Essentially, fanfic about the Artful Dodger. Oh God, yeah, he's. I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page right now, and I was like, man, there is so much stuff that I just haven't there, heard of his, even among this, the Discworld stuff. Which is actually kind of delightful because one of the reasons I'm, I was very sad about his passing was, and it wasn't because Sir Terry was dead, because remember he was also a really vocal advocate for um, right to die, right to die, and you could tell that this was actually the great tragedy of his life was that he was losing. The interior. He was losing the interior of his selfhood, and so hooray, he's free from that burden and that tragedy, and 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 that's something to rejoice over. What made me sad was thinking I'm never going to meet my favorite characters again. Yeah, you know, I was kind of I was kind of yeah. grieving the the loss of of not knowing who you know how the witches of Lanker were going to shake out when Granny Weatherwax did inevitably die, or what happened when she finally did meet death and go with him, or. You'd never find out if uh, young Sam Vimes grows up to go into the watch or if he does something completely different, which, you know, is a question I've always had. And so I was really sad about that. But on the other hand, there's all these Pratchett books I haven't read. And so now I'm super excited about uh, having an opportunity to add, to add more people, as it were, to, to my, my internal Pratchett society. And he can't possibly have a lot of work stored up. It's, it's suggested there are a couple. Well, there's a, there's a Tiffany Aching book coming out in uh, 2015, I think, at some point that he finished over the summer of 2014, and I think that's the only one I know of. Yeah, and so, and beyond that, I mean, he's also, you know, he did some work with, like, illustrated books. I have a copy somewhere, hardcover of The the Last Hero. Oh, uh, that <laughs> I love that one. World, which yeah. Which is pretty great. Um, and he, there's also, like, a slip of the keyboard, which I've got right here, which yeah. is mm-hmm. officially collected nonfiction and it's mostly things he wrote for convention books. Yeah, mm. one and of the fr- one of the first books I bought my daughter was "Where's My Cow." <laughs> <laughs> and Did I you love have to the get home every night at the same time and read it to her religiously. I, you know, I haven't read it to her yet because her her "Where's My Cow" is actually a Knuffle Bunny for years and years and years. But I think now that she's older and we can discuss the pictures more, we'll probably start putting that in heavy rotation. You know, there's the big difference between putting it on the shelf and actually reading it to the kid. <laughs> I'm interested in actually introducing my kids to these books, but they're, they, the kind of the wordplay that uh, and, and the Britishness of it all is kind of impenetrable at their age. But eventually, when the time is right, I will seed them with, with something. I'm not sure what yet. But... Are you just going to casually leave it out on a, on a shelf and, and hope that they pick it up? Or are you going to mention <laughs> yeah, that? You... That'll never work. They'll never pick it up. They'll uh, go along their way and do what they want. Tell them you are not allowed to read this. <laughs> whatever you, whatever you do, don't. Yeah, I think that's it. Whatever you do, don't read it. 
If I can come up with a decent elevator pitch, I can usually convince my daughter at least. Yeah. <laughs> if something sounds vaguely intriguing to her, she'll she'll give it a go at the very least. But I think it's going to have to wait a while until she can really appreciate it. Yeah, this is actually something I was giving some thought to is um, throughout elementary school and beyond, I did a lot of sneak reading where I would just kind of casually pull books out of my mother's stack of library books, or I would find whatever they were reading, my parents were reading, and hide in a closet and read it, which is how I got a hold of The Godfather in third grade. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the point is, my parents left books around the house a lot, like, 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 like we had huge bookshelves in the living room. And I was thinking about this. And I was like, I have a lot of books on my Kindle. I have no idea how my kid is going to sneak read stuff that's explicitly tied to one device. Mm. You got to leave Kindles spread around the house. <laughs> With only, one, bo- only yeah. one book on any of them, though. Yeah. I was lucky that I didn't have to sneak books. We had an official rule in my house that if a book is on a bookcase, it's uh, public property and anyone can read it. No, I took The Godfather out of my father's nightstand, so that should tell you everything you know about both me. Oh, God, you're lucky that's what you came out with. <laughs> I know. Could have been a lot worse. One of the books I remember reading was uh, Alan Sherman, you know, the uh, novelty song guy who did uh, Hello, Mudda, Hello, Fada. Uh-huh. He, he wrote a book called The Rape of the APE, which stood for American, Pur- American Puritan Ethic. And it's just a semi-comedic history of the sexual revolution my goodness <laughs> i wow yeah do i even want to know what age which you read that i don't remember i got to uh i got to portnoy's complaint at a very early oh. age <laughs> which, it should I explain a lot i tried portnoy's complaint after reading it being mentioned in a uh woody allen short story Oh, no. <laughs> that reminds me, we also had a copy of everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask laying around the house. And <laughs> went back to that one a few times. <laughs> that, was a, that was actually a joke gift to my sister, but it was no joke to me, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so are we all just going to leave stacks of Pratchett laying around the house for people to trip over? Is that, is that where we're to, to try and bring this, valiantly yank this back onto topic? <laughs> I don't have kids, but I've effectively done that already. Yeah, well, there you go, Monty. You're ahead of all of us. I think I'm still just trying to convince more friends of mine to read Terry Pratchett because I feel like a lot of them were not as into like, especially I think as a kid, I definitely like tried because a lot of my friends were were also nerds and read a lot of fantasy, and I you know like Douglas Adams and all that stuff. So I I tried to sort of spread them around with with mixed results. But my yeah. family in particular, like uh, several of my cousins, I mean, we were texting when we found out that he had died. We were all there were lots of sad emoji. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so, you know, my, particularly my cousin who's a librarian, she's just, she, I think Terry Pratchett may be her, her favorite author, at least tied with, if not before Charles Dickens. So I think that's, that's a pretty good, pretty good rep there. Yeah. That's yeah, good company. That's yeah. very good. Yeah. Well, to, to that end, we should probably, uh, go into detail on what we think would be good entry points for people who might be listening yeah, and, yeah. and trying to get into Discworld or some other Pratchett. Mm-hmm. Because it's, good it's question. a pretty sizable body of work that he yeah. put out there, so. Yeah, I I think that there's I mean there are certainly some plot lines that go throughout them. I as we said at the beginning, I don't think you have to start in any like chronologically. I don't think really makes any sense. I think going in sort of the 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 mini arcs, you know, I think are good places. I think I mean it seems to me guards guards is, guards, is guards. probably a pretty good entry point. That's kind of the one that I always start people on. Yeah, I've had some good success with that. I've had people go on from guards guards and continue with other books. Yeah. Or if you wanted to try, you could always try Weird Sisters and then Witches Abroad and then Masquerade. 
Um, that skips over lords and ladies, which <laughs> oh, is actually right, the one I I start people with lords and ladies. Oh God, the scene where Nanny Og uh, faces off against Kern and the Horned God, and he's like <laughs> he's like your regard would make a devout atheist cry in envy, and I I just love that line. <laughs> You're right, but there's the four witches books, not three, four. But there's the yeah. you do a cluster of the witches books, or you do a cluster of the guards books, starting with guards guards, and there's men at arms, feet of clay. Right. Yep. Yeah, the reason I go Guards, Guards is generally because it's the first in the City Watch series, so you don't require yep. a lot of background knowledge on the characters. Vimes is kind of a bastard who kind of makes good, which is a, is a plot line that everybody loves. Um, and it's it's also, it doesn't require a lot of Discworld background either. It's, yeah. I mean, right, it's just... the fantasy tropes and stuff like that. I mean, I just, to my mind, I think the thing I always remember from that is, it's a million to one shot, but it just might work. <laughs> And also doesn't romanticize dragons, which is a nice way to defang people's concerns about fantasy because they're like, oh, Christ, it's people riding unicorns and talking to dragons. You're like, no, the dragons are awful. (laughs) Or they explode, one or the other. I think those are good. I mean, I think if you're starting younger readers, I honestly would say the Tiffany Aching books, I think, are a good entry point because they're, you know, they are targeted to younger readers, but they are firmly rooted in Discworld as well. So, uh, you know, I think that that's that's a pretty good place to start if you're a... You're trying to start the the young folks. Let's take a break so I can tell you about the sponsor you heard at the top of the show, Squarespace. You may have heard of them before. Let me explain about Squarespace. It used to be really hard to build websites. You needed to have design skills and coding skills. You needed to use a whole bunch of different tools. You needed to find a web host. There were a lot of things you needed to do. Now, you know what you need to do? Use Squarespace. That's it. You can use Squarespace to make building beautiful websites easy. And if you're new to Squarespace, you should check it out. You've never seen it before, only heard about it. You really owe it to yourself to give it a try. There's a free trial available and you don't even have to put in your credit card. So if you're wondering what all the hubbub is about, about Squarespace, and you're thinking to yourself, well, surely there's a catch. Surely Squarespace can't make building websites that easy. Uh, But it can, and you can try it out without even giving your credit card in, and you will see what Squarespace has to offer. Squarespace 7, their new version, has a whole bunch of great new features, including a partnership with Getty Images, buying licensed images so that you have the rights to use beautiful images on your website. Beautiful photography is complicated, but not with Squarespace. You have access to 40 million high-quality Getty Images, and you can just use any of them for $10 an image. There are 15 new templates, integration with Google Apps. If your uh, organization uses Google Apps, you can integrate them into your domain and a whole lot more. Go to squarespace.com slash seven, spelled out S-E-V-E-N, to learn a lot more. And then, of course, there are the basic features of Squarespace. Beautiful design, responsive design, so it looks great on mobile and it looks great on computers, 24-7 support, and it's all for $8 a month. And if you buy a whole year up front, you get a free domain thrown in with the deal. So start that free trial today. And when when you sign up with Squarespace, use offer code SNELL. That'll let them know we sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. That's promo code SNELL. Thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring the incomparable Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. So, yeah, we've given people three three plausible entry points. And I actually like um, I actually like going postal as an entry point as well. Oh, that's a good one, too. I don't know how you guys feel about the moist stories, but I think that's a good – it's kind of self-contained, doesn't require a lot of background. And and again, Moist is a is you know an irredeemable character who manages to redeem himself through sheer audacity, which I think people tend to like. I also thought the Going Postal um, TV special, if I don't know if anybody yeah. else has seen it, was actually pretty good. Oh, you know, 
another one you could actually start people on would be Hogfather. Oh, yeah. Um, just mm. because you don't need a whole lot of background. Um, they give you plenty of it. And it does such a great job of cheerfully puncturing, like, the Mary Poppins myth at the same time that it talks about the importance of belief and it sends up it sends up the sentiment about the holidays. And it's and it's very self-contained, too. I feel like you really need to understand the character of death already, though, to properly appreciate uh, that book. I mean, they might they might enjoy it, but I don't think they would enjoy it as much as if they had already seen Death in Action in previous books. Yeah, Mort is Mort's pretty good. Yeah, Mort is only the fourth book, so there's not a lot of backstory to fight through, and it's lots of death. Yeah, <laughs> great. It is Hooray! great. No, yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> Sorry, I meant lots of death with a lowercase d. That's just, I don't remember why, but I have a recollection of feeling somewhat unsatisfied with Mordeth. I felt like the end was kind of weak, but well, it's not I as great as why. Reaper Man, but I don't want to jump people straight to Reaper Man. Yeah, Reaper Man's yeah, kind of true. a hard one to jump in on. But it's just like I dearly love, uh, I dearly love, as I mentioned, small gods, but I don't think I would try to introduce people to that because I think I would probably prefer that they go for one that has, uh, you know, future tales in that particular sub arc so that they have somewhere to go immediately afterwards. I, I've recommended Small Gods to people who are resolute anti-fantasy snobs to say, no, no, this is just a great way to talk about, you know, religion in the context of fantasy, and here's how it's done well. As a, see? Ha-ha! <laughs> but... <laughs> I'm glad we've recommended everything but the Rincewind books, too. Oh. I really like the Ridswood books. Actually, those are my favorite. I, 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 I remember as a kid having read the original two and then just waiting and being like, I remember as a teenager being so dissatisfied, like, oh, another Terry Pratchett book. Wow, this one's not about the wizards. I don't want this. And then when you finally got one, it was Eric. Yeah, think, Eric. I think wishes sorcery a weak, is a great Rincewind book. He's he's the hero. Sorcery of that one. is. I mean, the color of magic, yeah. light, fantastic, and sorcery were the first three books I read. And sorcery, I think, even as a kid, I could tell sorcery was a different type of book than the first two. Um, it's a little bit more serious. It's or it's just not quite as like gag a minute type thing. Although I will say that of my, I do think the luggage is one of my favorite constructions in the Terry Pratchett universe because it's just great and indestructible. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy that one, um, and I think you know some of the later ones not as good. I think Rincewind is kind of a he's a hard character to get behind because he's such a resolute coward. <laughs> That's what I really love the last continent where like he he meets the, yes. his, what what is basically his alternate life where old Rinzo is is hailed as a god among fellow wizards and uh, life would be peachy for him if he just stayed there and he can't. And I, I just really that was one where I've I've only read it. Um, I've read it, I think, one and a half times because the two-flower stuff at the end is unspeakably sad. Oh, I have vague recollections of that. I was just excited that we were going back to Rincewind out of nowhere. Because, like I say, I started with the original book. So in the back of my head, I still feel like Rincewind is the star of the Discworld books. Yeah, same no! here. <laughs> Even though he's clearly um, not. Oh, wait, yeah. no, I'm sorry. You know, I just realized I mixed, I messed up Interesting Times, which is the one I've only read, like... I've only been able to skim it after reading it the one time because that's it's heartbreaking. Right. And then, and then the um, book about last Australia is, is the yeah. last continent is is both funny, but you're like, oh really? Come on, Ugh, rinse wind, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that said, oh, I have a, I have a question because this this came up again at a party I went to this afternoon. Pyramids. Where do you guys stand on pyramids? Mm. Thumb down. I actually, have not have not read pyramids. That's one of the few I have not standalones I haven't read. I don't have a strong recollection of that, but I remember thinking it was pretty good. But then I read it on my honeymoon in Fiji, so. <laughs> yeah, that could have helped. 
I thought it was working way too hard to say, here's a real world thing. I'm going to put it into my fantasy world and see how it works. I was not. We're just getting started, Monty. (laughs) (laughs) Those are usually my least favorite. I like moist a lot, but I'm not that interested in the mechanics of I'm going to introduce a financial system into the disc world. Watch me do economics. (laughs) And pyramids just felt like that to me. I was not really into it at all. I feel like we'd be remiss if we ended this podcast without mentioning Gaspode, who is probably my favorite character. (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, Oh, so Gaspode. So did you like the ending of the book where Gaspode runs away from the loving family and is like, no! (laughs) (laughs) I forgot he he appeared in that many books, too. I remember him from The Truth, mainly, but yeah. Yeah. I always enjoy, and I forget which book it is, and it's a totally throwaway line where... um, the pop prostitutes of Ankh-Morpork are, are renegotiating to name their street the street of negotiable affection. <laughs> and for some reason, the the corporate euphemism just, I, I can't remember, I can't remember the book, but the corporate euphemism just stuck with me. And um, it actually comes up against later when, because uh, I think they were also called the Guild of Seamstresses at some point too, because when uh, Agnes Knit comes from Lanker to make her fortune in Ankh-Morpork, she, she figures she can take some of her embroidery down there, and then she just, no, that is not what they do. They don't do embroidery. They don't sew seams. That's one of the jokes that's based on the real world. It's based on Seattle. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when right, Seattle because... was founded, uh, there were a lot of prostitutes, because this was a city where people would stop off on their way to the Alaskan Gold Rush. And there was just a shocking number of seamstresses in this city. He also mentioned that it's Seattle in the tunnels, too. Yeah. Yeah. And he took that uh, shocking number of seamstresses thing and elaborated it so that there was, I think it was his joke where there was a census and there were 50,000 seamstresses and one sewing needle. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's an excellent Wikipedia page, by the way, of uh, Guilds of Ankh-Morpork, which is quite long. <laughs> strangely enough but i was gonna say by i you know i think one of the things that i do love the most about uh, uh terry pratchett is all the the secondary characters so i was thinking of for example uh cup cut me own throat dibbler yes um, who is one of my favorite like random characters who appears all the time um and uh i think veterinary in particular who is among my very very favorite characters because he is so good he's just written so well <laughs> Um, and his relationship with Vimes in particular is just always fascinating to watch. And he's, you know, he's sort of evil, but not really evil. I'm rereading Color of Magic right now, and it's really disconcerting to see a patrician in there that I don't think is Vetinari. Yes, I think it's implied at some point that it's not. Yeah. But yeah. Well, there was a discussion on alt fan Pratt. This is from the annotated Pratchett file. I don't, I'm not just remembering it. There was a discussion on <laughs> alt fan Pratchett in 1992 or three about whether this was the same character, and Terry Pratchett posted <laughs> to say, "Yeah, that's the same character." And people argued with him, saying, "It's <laughs> yeah. not the same character. What do you know? You just wrote it." And Terry offered a compromise, which is the early patrician is the same character, but written by a worse author. <laughs> <laughs> that is Terry Pratchett in a nutshell. Well, and I, I will say that my one issue with it is in the, uh, in the TV adaptation of Color of Magic, um, Jeremy Irons plays the patrician. And 
it's he doesn't i don't know maybe it's just me being upset because it does not match my my pers- my you know internal image of vetinari but he comes across as like he makes him like strangely effeminate or something it's just oh, a very no. weird strange delivery and then the, whoever it is that they get to play him in going postal is actually much better and does like the sort of slightly sinister but generally well meaning <laughs> style yeah much better there, there are so many. I think the Patricia may well be one of what, what my favorite recurring character, just because I, I like how he's always just very casually sitting on circumstances that he knows and nobody else knows. Um, you know, when he, when it turns out he's he's locked in a cell and he organizes the rats, the snakes, and the scorpions into warring factions and advises them on on how to on how to do warfare against each other. Or, oh. and I realize that raising steam is not a favorite disc world book for some of you, but when it turns out that he's actually been shoveling coal on the on the steam train just to get <laughs> just to get a feel for it. <laughs> uh, it turns out the veterinary in the Going Postal adaptation was played by Charles Dance, who you may remember as Tywin <gasps> Lannister yes! on Game of Thrones. Yes, yes! that's right. Yes. Uh, apparently, according to Terry Pratchett, his choice to play him was Alan Rickman, who, of course, would have been amazing. <laughs> oh, I love the patrician. I, I, um, one man, one vote. It, one man, one vote. He's the man with the vote. And I enjoy that he he throws mimes in a scorpion pit with, with, a, with a legend emblazoned reading, learn the words. <laughs> yeah, I like that, but I hate, I, I may have read these books too much. I hate the very next line of that book, which is, because mimes were silent but deadly to his mood. Oh. oh, come on, Terry. What is that? Mm. <laughs> They're not all going to be winners, Monty. They're not all going to be called, winners. That's called, I'm hooking a 14-year-old who knows that he could, he, who, who's like, I could be sophisticated now. Like, I <laughs> I, th- I think that he does aim some of these things at a younger audience to get them interested, and then they'll rise up to the material as it happens, too. I was a younger audience when I read that. <laughs> ah, well, you're just exceptionally refined then. <laughs> it may be that I didn't notice the joke the first few times I read it, and then noticing it. And having it click into place enraged me. <laughs> no, there's something veterinary says in um, the truth that I say at work all the time, which is that people don't want the news; they want the olds. Mm. And uh, I think it's a very and and I realized it was kicking around newsrooms before uh, veterinary said it, but I actually heard it from veterinary before I heard it from any other working reporter or editor. So I I, uh, I appreciate that. It's 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 since helped me when I'm pitching stories. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> This is, yeah, what you can learn from Terry Pratchett. Yeah. <laughs> How you can apply Terry Pratchett to your own working career. Mostly, just keep working. Yeah. Because people compare him to Douglas Adams because they were both, you know, funny British people. But Douglas Adams wrote, like, seven books. Yeah. Douglas yeah. Adams never met a deadline. And Terry Pratchett has been writing two books a year. Yeah, Terry Pratchett never met a deadline he couldn't, he couldn't knock over in his sleep. Yeah. yeah. When when I saw him speak, he credited his early training as both a journalist and as a PR man for a nuclear power plant. And he said, well, you had deadlines. <laughs> you had to meet them. And you had to learn how to get out of the way of your own head and just get the job done. And again, useful advice for any career. You know, you have deadlines. You have to meet them. Get get out of your head and get the job done. <laughs> so this is my um, – I, I was – thinking you know if you were to recommend authors in the yawning wake since there will be no more new terry pratchett books and we will all eventually reach the end of however many he's written so far what other authors would you recommend when they oh you like terry pratchett so you'll like xyz and um is there anybody working who is like terry pratchett well i was gonna say the thing is is christopher moore comes pretty close for me but he's also a dude who puts out a, a book like once every three to four years so um, but yeah, I would recommend Christopher Moore uh, for the same, um, he's, you know, for the same, oh, he starts off doing, you know, juvenile comedic fantasy and then 
has his work has become much more thoughtful and nuanced and social commentary over time while still also being comedic and, 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 and fantastic. I'm trying to think of another another writer that I think works in the similar vein, but I think that's it's such it's a very small niche and I think he he you know for years for decades dominated it because um, I, I mean Adams would be the closest sort of analog in terms of writing style. But I can't think of, uh, you know, someone else working in the same way. In fact, I know I know an agent in particular who really is a big Terry Pratchett fan and is like, I'm trying to get people to submit me more things like that, you know, humorous fantasy, but there's just not that much out there. <laughs> See, that was my problem. I used to read everything that was labeled as humorous fantasy until the day somewhere around the 11th or 12th Xanth book when I realized just because I like some things in this genre doesn't mean I have to read Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I can set down the John DeChancey and move on with my life. There are a couple books in particular. I was thinking um, To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis has that <sighs> sort of humorous. Uh, it's signed more sci-fi than fantasy, but it has that sort of same humor mixed with an actual plot. Um, Bellwether by her as well, which is, all I think, also a pretty good recommendation. They're oh, Bellwether they, is funny. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good book. They suggest, uh, you know... Uh, one of his literary influences might have been uh, P.G. Woodhouse, who I love and would always suggest, but that, that's pure humor. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good pick because it's funny. And also, if you like Terry Pratchett, you're okay with an author having a million books. Here's another author <laughs> with a million books. I'm on board with that. If you like Pratchett, jump out of fantasy, read Woodhouse. Yeah. Can't go wrong with, with P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, I don't know, though, who else in terms of... I feel like it's we, you know, someone someone else should be working in this area. Yeah, well, I think we should actually wind down for the night. This has been an hour of us uh, holding a virtual wake to Terry Pratchett and, and sharing, um, and then trying to say what would we read next, and all of us are oh. <laughs> <laughs> go back and read Terry Pratchett. <laughs> yeah, I started over with Color of Magic. Yeah, I may or may not be planning to read the entire series all over again. I reread Steam last night, and um, what I found really striking about Steam were how many cameos show up. Um, there's a throwaway line about how they have a Klax tower up in Lanker, and the witches fly up there to share coffee with the Klax operators. Yeah. And there's also another um, King Barons and Magrat are sending, you know, Klax is saying, and when may we expect a, a, a train station? Because we need to join our rightful place on the world stage. And um, so I, I was like, oh, that's a little bit of a shout out. And there, there are some other callbacks uh mentioned um to one of the characters who was in who was in going who was in snuff and um then they go back of course to uberwald and you've got lady margolotta i think he realized if he ended you know if he if he could no longer write books and he didn't wrap up every single character people would be upset yeah yeah but what happened to my favorite character it had the feeling of a season finale, if that makes sense, where yeah. because it's the whole the, the theme to the whole book is things change, progress happens. Hooray for human inventiveness. Please always fight against small mindedness. It's like it's like, you know, he was saying, I don't have a whole lot of time to, to say these things are important to me. So I'm going to I'm just going to get that all out there right now. Not yeah. a whole lot of subtlety. Here you go. <laughs> But I wanted to know how Grebo the cat ended up. <laughs> oh, God, Grebo's the greatest. <laughs> the thing that threw me about Raising Steam is I realized that early in Discworld, there would be stories like uh, soul music or moving pictures where something from the real world impinges on, the, on Discworld, there's a plot about it, and then it leaves. But recently, things like the clacks and now an actual steam engine have just been 
coming to Discworld and staying and fundamentally changing it. And I I don't know how I feel about Discworld changing like that. Well, you can always go back to the original and then just it's it's back to where it was. I'm gonna. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, guys, I'm back. (laughs) Hey, Jason's here. Jason, what's your favorite Terry Pratchett book? The the one he read. Uh, guards, guards was pretty good. I I I. You guys mentioned Tiffany Aching earlier, and my one piece of uh, of uh, information that I was going to pass on is that is that uh, just as Dan's relative, whose relationship I can't remember, who's the children's librarian, likes those. Um, my wife is also a children's librarian and likes those books very much. And it looks like there is that one last uh, Tiffany Aching book coming out. So that's uh, that's something because she really loved those books too. And she'd be on this episode, except she's traveling, and it would be her first incomparable episode, but alas. Uh, any last thoughts before before we wrap it up? Don't hesitate to ping us on Twitter for more Pratchett talk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for 30 years, I have been looking in the Pratchett section of a bookstore every time I go in, just in case there's a new book there. And since the internet has shown up, that's been less necessary, because I know when a book is due, but I check yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to keep checking you forever. Should forever all right this has been a fitting tribute and i'm i'm uh, glad you guys could be here for it um so now it comes time for me to thank the people you just listened to talk about terry pratchett for the last hour monty ashley thank you very much thank you jason lisa schmeiser thank you thank you steve lutz thank you very much my pleasure jason i hope this is the last one of these we have to do for a while no more tributes Nope, that's it. Everybody's going to just stop dying. Please, stop. Stop Stop with the dying. Take a holiday, Death. Yep. Either that or we stop the tributes and move straight to Malice. And Dan Warren, <laughs> thank you. It was good to be here. And that's it for this episode of The Incomparable. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Bye.